This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with us today from comedian Lee Camp, The Young Turks, Counterspin, The Jimmy Dore Show, The Majority Report, The Onion Radio News, and MarkFury.com. And a note for our more sensitive listeners, though this episode may be depressing, it does end on a high note of the inevitability of endlessly recurring progressive failures. So stay tuned for that. We're currently witnessing the sale of the United States of America. So don't say you never saw anything exciting in your life. We're watching a formerly great nation being chopped up and sold off for parts right before our eyes. Chicago's parking meters have been sold to Abu Dhabi. This means that if the city of Chicago wants to close its roads to have a parade to celebrate their freedom, they would have to get permission from Abu Dhabi. It also means that Abu Dhabi can and has jacked up parking spot rates to $8 an hour. So basically, if you're poor and you want to go see downtown Chicago, don't bother. It's, it's not for your kind. The Silver Dome in Michigan sold for only half a million dollars to a Canadian millionaire. The Pennsylvania Turnpike was going to be sold to foreign investors until they backed out. I guess there were too many drunk driving Steeler fans that came with the purchase. Kind of like buying a house plan and then realizing it's infested with uh, fat Steelers fans. And the Gulf of Mexico was sold to BP under the you broke it, you bought it policy. We're seeing whole swaths of the country sold for drilling rights or clear-cutting rights, mountaintop removal or fracking, taking things that nature built with care over millions of years and selling them to billionaires to be gutted in a matter of months. Whenever someone gets a tattoo, other people go, how do you know you won't regret that 20 years from now or 50 years from now? Well, couldn't we apply the same thought process to selling our country. Don't you think we might regret that? Don't you think we might regret cutting off all of our mountains, our trees, selling our roads, selling our flood levees more than someone regrets a tattoo of vanilla ice? Well, maybe not more, but almost as much. But you know why it doesn't matter? Because the people selling it don't give a about 50 years from now. They don't care because they're enriching themselves and their business partners today. We are killing ourselves from the inside, shedding pieces like a leper colony. And you know what's a more effective killer than bullets? Disease. And we have a disease called unfettered, ravenous, free market capitalism. It's untethered, scandalous, targeted cannibalism. We are apparently willing to sell our legs right out from under ourselves. But who knows? Maybe the mountains will grow back. are so broke that we have now started selling advertising space on public land and public property. So a perfect example are the manholes uh, in Kentucky and Tennessee. KFC has started uh, putting their advertisements on them. Okay, let me always, as always, make a silly point here. Am I the only one who thinks manholes is a funny word? 
It's yeah. underrated how funny that word is. Yeah, it's and, and it's funny to have these companies say, boy, I'd like your manhole. I would like to place my ad on your manhole. <laughs> All right, now back to the serious story. Look, uh, this is so sad. Uh, we instead of doing regular, <laughs> no, okay, that's, that's not photo, real. That's Photoshop. I know, but but I mean, how funny is? It that? gives you a sense of how absurd this is. And and if you put the KFC ad on the fire hydrant, you know what dogs do to fire hydrants, right? So I'm not sure that's where I would want to put a food ad, right? But we're so broke, and we can't. God forbid, we should ever raise taxes on the rich, right? Or on corporations. No, no, no. We have to give them tax subsidies. So what are we doing? We're auctioning off. Look, the fire hydrants are goofy, and so I wouldn't do it. It's a bad idea. But they're actually thinking of much worse: putting it on the front bumpers of police cars. Yes, and that is but actually disastrous. And even a police chief that was interviewed by the New York Times sees that there could be a conflict of interest, there could be a bit of an issue with that. He says, because of what we do, we like to be neutral. Say there were two shopping plazas and one advertised and one didn't. Would that company feel like we weren't treating them fairly? Oh, my God, to have the cops sponsored is the biggest disastrous uh, idea I've ever heard. Yeah, here's another scenario that I think would be disastrous. So you have an elementary school or a high school and they need some funding. And we've done this story before where public uh, districts are looking for advertisers to bring in some extra money, right? And all of a sudden a for-profit college comes in, they're like, we want to do a little advertisement on your school bus. What's the big deal? Oh yeah, believe me that's coming. You know in Baltimore, uh, they're trying to sell, for a while they were trying to sell off landmarks until, we, until people were like, what are you doing? They're like, I don't know, we got a park. Uh, we're out of money. You want the park? They're like, hey, you want a statue of Washington? What do you need? They were literally trying to sell off the landmarks to private corporations. Uh, this George Washington statue brought to you by Johnson & Johnson. Okay, this is the desperate straits that we're in because we refuse to raise taxes on people. You know, back in the... The days of this country, which conservatives call the golden years, we used to have taxes for the top bracket, not for all their money, but a certain amount above 200,000, above 400,000, every dollar above that. 70 to 94 percent in taxes. Now, if you go to like 39 percent, people are like, no! And they're like, no, no, no. Instead, let's cut the cops, let's cover everybody's manhole, <laughs> and let's sell off uh, statues and parks. This is crazy, man. Sell out with me, oh yeah. Sell out with me tonight. The record companies only give me lots of money, and everything's gonna be alright. CNN host and Time columnist Fareed Zakaria is no doubt a wealthy man. On top of what he makes as a pundit, he's reportedly paid $75,000 to give one-hour talks, often to giant financial firms and hedge funds. In other words, he's just the sort of guy who maybe shouldn't write a column denouncing the cushy pensions of state workers. 
That is exactly what he did do, though, in the most recent Time magazine. Zakaria uses the Wisconsin recall election to argue that when it comes to the costs of public sector employees, quote, the Democratic Party is wrong on the substance, clinging to its constituents rather than doing the right thing, close quote. Worker pensions are, according to Zakaria, the single biggest threat to the U.S.'s fiscal health. He even warns that we face a Greece-style crisis as a result. But his evidence is a confused mishmash of supposedly dire state budget numbers. Pension liabilities in California are 30 times the state budget deficit. In Ohio, the costs are growing. Does this make for a crisis? Not really. Economist Dean Baker took a whack at Zakaria's math on his Beat the Press blog, noting that the California system is in fact 75% funded. And most other states, he shows, are in reasonably good shape. Pension funds, like the rest of the economy, took a big hit due to the massive financial crisis. But you get the feeling Zakari is not really talking about the math here. Now, the real story is political. Unions support the Democratic Party, and to Zakaria, their power drowns out other voices, including what he calls average citizens. But good Democrats, Zakaria notes, are bravely standing up to the unions and making workers pay. The lesson from Wisconsin, then, for Zakaria, is that instead of opposing Republican Governor Scott Walker, Democrats should emulate him. That's terrible political advice, but I bet plenty of banks would pay a lot of money to hear it. And I heard him say, nothing's ever promised tomorrow today. From the shot, like Tim, it's a harder way. So this is in the name of love, like Robert say. Before you ask me to go get a job today, can I at least get a raise on a minimum wage? And I know the government administer AIDS. So I guess we just pray like the ministers say. Alu Akbar, throwing some hot cars. The things we seen on the screen, it's not ours. But these niggas from the hood, so these dreams not far. Well, I'm from the dope boys, is the rock stars, but they can't cop. Cars without seeing cop cars, I guess they want us all behind bars. I know it, uh, and I heard them say, Nothing's ever promised tomorrow today. And I heard them say, Nothing's ever promised tomorrow today. But we'll find a way. Ron Paul was on Morning Joe, and I tease it at the top of the show. And you know, Ron Paul's all about his core convictions. So they're talking about Mitt Romney and whether he thinks Mitt Romney has any core convictions and if he agrees with them. Yes, and whether he's shown himself well, to be someone who has clear convictions. The Republican Party of the last several decades, I would say he has core convictions, but I just disagree with him. Okay. Because the core convictions aren't what I think we sometimes pretend we believe in and what we have believed in in the past. So therefore... So let me just uh, also back this up is and and remind you that uh, they're going to ask him i'm going to play this clip later but ron paul is uh, is a recipient of social security and he takes the checks and cashes them and spends the money even though he's the biggest guy who rails against the quote-unquote welfare state and he's against uh, okay so that that this is all going to come up in this interview. okay so here we go so here's some more stuff he has to say about core convictions sure he's all for getting rid of the welfare state right your, your condemnation of the welfare state it would seem to me that you are headed in the direction of eliminating programs like Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Am I wrong on that? Well, sort of, because there's a good time, a time sequence. As adamant as I am about the purity of a philosophy, I'm also very pragmatic when it comes. You know, I want to get rid of the Fed, but I also don't want to get rid of the Fed tomorrow. What I want to do is keep taking Social Security. I won't get rid of it after I'm dead. That's what I want to do. I'm very pragmatic. I'm very pragmatic. Sure, I want to end the welfare state, but not if it's helping me right now. 
I'm still going to take it. He has some more stuff. And uh, here, Joe Barnacle asked him about the social contract. Any obligation to talk to them, perhaps instruct them about the fact that there has always been a social contract among Americans from one generation to another to help those who need help the most. Okay. Do you, is, there a, is there a social contract? Well, here's what he has to say about it. Yeah, but not through government. The best way you can help people is have freedom and free markets, incentives, production, sound money. So and we have accepted this sort of social contract you talk about for the last hundred years. And look at where we are. Look at what's happened in the last 20 years. Look at what's happened in the year, since the year 2000. Look at what's happened in the last five years. It's downhill. So what do we get? For education for kids. They're graduating. They have more debt, no education, and no jobs. That's what your social contract is giving you. So he's saying the social contract, meaning Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, all those things, they're ruining our country. That's what. The, but he seems to still be taking those things, right? And so then they ask him point blank, are you, here it goes. Bit of a personal question then, are you on Social Security? Do you get Social Security checks? I, uh, I, I do. Well, where's the, I mean, is there? You just told younger generations that they should wean themselves off this yes, social contract. That is true, but you but, haven't but, but, done it yourself. The social Security, just like I said, that I would preserve the Social Security yeah. the best I can. You know, until I'm dead, and then <laughs> screw it. I don't care. You know, I got to preserve it while I'm getting that check. I might live till I'm 90 years old. <laughs> I, that's he asked them again. But we want to get off. But this is one program we were supposed to be paying into an insurance program. I understand that. Yeah, so it's Don't you think you could have set a good example for the future generations? I mean, I'm not saying you're not the wealthiest man in Congress. I know that, but you have enough means to take care of yourself in retirement. Shouldn't you provide an example? You know that you not to be all sanctimonious about it, but I just want to. <laughs> you're not being sanctimonious. Okay, you're just being a little sanctimonious. A little bit, but I'm just curious. Couldn't you have set an example? No, I think. First of all, I like how they make it that the guy who's actually asking the question of the hypocrite, mm -hmm. he's the guy who's a little bit out of line. Yeah, here. yeah, and it's, he's 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 apologizing before they berate him for. Oh, yes. because he's asking a question that might make this particular politician uncomfortable. Yes. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to expose your hypocrisy on this issue. <laughs> by the way, it's very easy to do with Ron Paul. You can expose mm. him on abortion. You can uh -huh. expose him on this. I'm sure any one of his positions you can explore his, expose his hypocrisy, mm -hmm. except for maybe foreign wars. I don't know about that. But uh, yeah, hang on, there's a little bit more. Uh, I, I think the programs are so designed, just as I use the post office, too. I use sure. government highways. I, I you do that, too. See, because I, I, all that stuff that I rail against, I actually use and like. And that just, but it makes for good rhetoric, and it gets people who don't think deeply really worked up. I use the banks. I use the Federal Reserve System. Okay, I get it. Stop it. You're a big hypocrite. I got it. <laughs> I don't care. I get it. I get it. You do everything that you, you rail against you're a part of. I got it. But that doesn't mean that you can't work to remove this in the same way on social security. Remove the highways? Yeah, remove the highways. <laughs> Where are we going to drive? And the post office and Where's the Where's he going to How's he going to go get his social security check? <laughs> <laughs> Who's going to deliver his social security yeah. check? I am trying to make a transition. If I were 20 years old and offered that chance, I'd jump at it. And the young people jump at it because they know that uh, this is not solvent. Yeah. So I personally don't see any That'd consistency in that because okay. we were supposed to have money there and we had this, you know, contract. This is not like signing up for food stamps. This is signing up to, to get, I still pay Social Security. I pay more into it than I get out. So then why are you advocating for its end? Why, if it's not welfare, if it's not like food stamps, then why do you want, if it's something that you pay into that you draw from, why are you against it? I'm crazier than you. I'm crazier than you. And
document on the internet freedom is that it exposes the authors for what they are yes small government anti-regulation ideologues that will use any issue particularly those that are so dear to young people to further their deeply anti-democratic agenda the document is the normal libertarian talking points with a thin veneer of internet freedom over it it's a joke and defies the reason that libertarians try so desperately to lay claim to I would go one step further small government anti-regulation ideologues that's how they would that's how they would they would characterize themselves but the reality is is they're not for small government per se because what does small government mean relative to what how do you define small government we should only have 50 people in the government or we should only spend point oh 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 one percent of our GDP on government services or it should just be an army and a police force or it should just be a fire department no what Rand and Ron Paul are are corporate feudalists and they operate under the guise of whatever small government means this undefinable thing to allow for corporate interests capitalist interest capitalist control interests who control the capital to dominate unfettered over everyone that is what they're promoting. That is what their internet document, whatever it's called, internet freedom from the campaign for liberty, the technology revolution, whatever that document, whatever they're calling it, that is what that document says. It says that the internet, which is essentially which is as necessary as any utility to people at this point should be controlled by corporate fiefdoms because they will operate in the best interests of people which is a lie and they can dress it up with this whole notion of government stuff in this I agree there are problems with government of course like there are problems with any institution that story of that uh, guy in Florida, the lifeguard, who goes and breaks company policy to save a drowning man, leaving his area supposedly unprotected, but he knew that there was another lifeguard who was going to take over, saves a drowning man, pulls this guy onto shore, and then is summarily fired by the corporation that hired him for breaking corporate policy. 
after the story gets uh, wide exposure, they come and hire them again. Does that mean there should be no corporations? No. It means every institution makes policies that are wrong-headed. Every institution does it. But we know that corporations serve one agenda to maximize their profits. Whether they, when they're working in their best capacity, and the reason why they exist, it is to maximize their profits. When government is functioning in its best capacity, it is to serve the broad base of people's interests. Does that happen all the time with government? No. Does it happen the majority of the time? I would argue yes, but barely. But is the solution to destroy government, to strip it of its regulatory power? Because all you'll be left is those corporations which have limited legal liability, an enormous amount of cash, and a desire to do whatever it takes to maximize their profits. So whether it's the pharmaceutical companies lying about their test results, whether it's uh, corporations trying to buy government so that their regulations can benefit them, whether it's cutting corners for safety, consumers and workers, it doesn't matter. The point is government at its best is far better than corporations at their best. And unless you come up with some third entity That's why they had to say the hand is invisible, because nobody ever sees it. Those are your two choices. So you make the best of the government. I keep, I, when, I, when I first read the, uh, that, that Internet Freedom Manifesto from the Pauls, I was wondering, who were they trying to please with that? Because, I mean, other than like the, you know, the usual libertarian crowd, they were really, especially Ron, was really able to get you know, the, the young internet crowd to rally behind him for his uh, presidential uh, for his presidential campaign and I mean these people who are I, see, I saw it on Reddit and a number of other sites these people the same people who were going like Ron Paul 2012 Ron Paul 2012 in every comment when this came out they were just like what like well I mean the bottom line is this is that the Pauls are corporatists and like like any type of libertarian <laughs> When it starts to touch it, when it starts to, when the idea of unfettered corporate control or something actually starts to impact you in a negative way, then whoa, 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 whoa. Right? Everybody's a libertarian until it infringes upon what they like. I'm looking through you. Where did you go? I thought I knew you. What did I as an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. 
Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. The House Agricultural Committee has approved uh, a version of the Farm Bill that includes deep cuts uh, to food assistance programs, uh, food stamps, and uh, basically they are advocating for $35 billion to be cut from the federal food and nutrition budget and $16.5 billion of which comes out of the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, also known as uh, SNAP. Now, what they're really focusing on is uh, cutting the SNAP program for those uh, who are categorically eligible. And I'll explain what that is later, but just keep in mind that this will affect three, two to three million Americans. They will lose access to these food stamps. And it will also impact 280,000 children who will not be eligible for the free lunch program. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, by the way, for those of you who are wondering what the SNAP program is and what it, it uh, assists people with, it basically averages to about $1.50 per person per meal. So that's the kind of government assistance they're getting. They're living high off the hog. Uh, $30, $31 per person per week. And also, nearly all recipients have incomes below the poverty line. The rate of error and fraud is under 4.36% according to the Government Accountability Office. So, of course, you'll hear Republicans saying, Oh, look at these people taking advantage of government handouts. People who don't even deserve it. People who are making a ton of money. But no, the reality is, um, uh, when it comes to fraud, it's only 4.3%. Uh, so it, it is, in fact, overwhelmingly going to the poor who actually need it. Yes. Uh, and it is, in fact, a small amount. A dollar fifty per meal is ridiculously low. Uh, and uh, I, nonetheless, have mixed feelings about this. Right, which I honestly can't believe. Every once in a while, Jenks' conservative side comes out, and this is one of th these are one of the stories, or this is one of the stories where his conservative side comes out. It makes absolutely no sense at all. No. So, okay, all right. Can so I state me, it first? Or? Yeah, go ahead. All right. <laughs> now, look, I believe, first of all, when you cut these programs and don't raise taxes on the rich, when taxes are at a historical low, it is outrageous. So if you ask me about my priorities, are you kidding me? I would raise taxes on the rich a million times more than I would cut these programs. So uh, I don't want anybody to get confused on that. Now, having said that, if we had raised taxes on the rich to a sane level and we've got an equitable distribution and it, of you know taxes, et cetera, et cetera, and we've straightened out all the other problems and we still have a deficit, and you said, hey, listen, I need the food stamps to go to people only below the poverty line. I think that that is an argument that could be considered reasonable. Now, because I say, all right, now this applies to people that are a little above the poverty line. Well, then you can go 20% above the poverty line or 30%. Where do you draw the line? Now, you might say poverty line should be higher. Okay, that's a fair argument. But I think a poverty line is a pretty reasonable place to draw the line for food stamps. 
Now, let me tell you how poor you need to be in order to uh, be eligible for the food stamp program. So there's categorical uh, eligibility, and that basically allows states to decide whether or not they want to expand the food stamp program to those who are just making a little bit above the poverty line, okay? See. So it's an option that gives states flexibility to grant benefits to families that have gross incomes slightly over 130% of the poverty line. And that basically means an income, a gross income, of $2,400 for a family of four. And that's per month. Mm -hmm. So obviously that's not a giant amount of money. And nonetheless, I still say that there's two issues here. One, there has to be a line somewhere as tough as that is, right? Uh, and then number two, I think that, and, and this will get me in a ton of trouble with liberals, but I think that if you keep giving food stamps to more and more people, it does create some degree of a culture of dependency. Okay. Now, I'm not in the Rush Limbaugh camp of, well, if you're poor, well, how do you go to get a fridge and get a sandwich? Okay. No, I understand why you're poor. I understand you really can't afford the food, and I understand how hard it is. But at the same time, it's a matter of incentives and disincentives. This is what we talk about when it comes to the financial industry and in almost everything I else. Know, Jake. And if you give people an incentive to rely on the government, some percentage of people will over rely on the government, which doesn't help them, it hurts them. A dollar and fifty cents per meal is not an incentive to remain on food stamps. It, it's, since it, you're it, not in that context, it's e like I get why you think, my God, that's so low. That can't possibly be an incentive for anyone. But I don't agree with that. I think that it is an, some incentive for some people. And so I know that back in the day, then we had unlimited welfare. That's not fair. A different welfare system, not unlimited welfare. That's ridiculous. Okay. Uh, before Bill Clinton did the welfare reform, we had more and more people on welfare because why? We would give them a check if they had another kid. Right. Now, again, oversimplifying, I understand that. But what did it do? It created some incentive to have more kids. Now, people say, oh, come on, they're not going to have more kids for an extra hundred bucks. Except some people do. And in this story, one of the women that is highlighted by the Democrats is look at her suffer. She's got six kids, et cetera, et cetera. But wait a minute, if you're on food stamps, why on God's green earth do you have six kids? Okay, let me just, okay. so many different things you're saying here. First of all, the woman, the woman with the six kids, right? So people are demonizing her, oh, she has six kids, how dare you, you're on food stamps, so why did you put yourself in that situation anyway? We're living in a country right now where Obama has to fight just to provide contraception, affordable contraception to women, right? And you have right-wingers basically arguing that comprehensive sex ed has no place within our schools. They want to make sure they keep information away from us. You have the Catholic Church trying to make sure that we don't have access to contraceptions. So it's, it's a problem in the country. Now, even if she does have access to contraception, and she could have afforded it, and it wasn't a problem for her, so what are we going to do? We're just going to let her six kids starve? She made that decision, unfortunately, to have the six kids. I don't think the six kids should live a, dis a disastrous lifestyle because of a, dis a decision that their mothers made. They need to at least have access to the food. Okay, well, and a dollar. But by that logic, she can have 12 kids, 16 kids, and we have to keep paying and paying. And, and look, it's not the kids' fault. I understand that. But at the same time, we have to create a system that doesn't give additional incentives. And that perhaps might even have disincentives for having more kids. But this isn't an incentive, Jank. It really isn't. A dollar and fifty. 
per meal is not an incentive. No one wants to live that way. I know you think we live in a bubble, but regardless of what bubble you live in, even if you're extremely poor, a dollar and fifty cents is simply not enough money to buy nutritious food. There's no question about that, especially with the price of food increasing more and more. It's it's not enough money, and to say like, oh, you know, you're making you're making more than twenty nine thousand dollars a year for your family of four. So because of that, you're not going to get any assistance for food.、Mm -hmm. You know, in the state of New Jersey, to make ends meet for a family of four, you need to have a household income of sixty thousand dollars. So if you're making twenty nine thousand dollars, imagine what kind of lifestyle you're living with a family of four. And also keep in mind, look, wages have been stagnant. This is the working poor, people who do have jobs, they're working, but they're simply not making enough money to make ends meet, right? So what the the problem with that is why do we have jobs in this country that don't allow people to make ends meet? Now, okay, when you look at the structural issues, I agree with you. So we should be concentrating on getting people better jobs. If you say, "Hey, let's raise the minimum wage," I'm 100% with you. Those people are working hard, and we haven't raised the minimum wage in a long time, and we need to create a more stable middle class so they don't need food stamps. I totally agree with you. Matter of priorities, I would put this at the bottom of my list of things to cut. Right? Unfortunately, in our topsy-turvy world, it's at the top of the list things. Of things getting actually cut. If you talk to me about welfare for corporations, well, that's a million times worse. The corporate welfare we do for, as we're taking money out of these poor kids' mouths, we're giving seven billion dollars a year in subsidies to oil companies. So I agree with you on all of that. All I'm saying is, if we saw, lived in a great world where we solved all of those problems, and we're on priority number 87, and we still haven't balanced the budget. I'm saying that this is a legitimate debate to have. Right, okay, but、I'm、we sorry, don't live. Uh, hold on, really、okay. quick. But we don't live in that world right now. We're not even close to living in that world right now. And this is legislation that has been proposed by the Agricultural Committee. So this, I am 100% against that. All right, then let me clarify.、Mm -hmm. So because that's a good point, I don't want people mistaking one. In this world, I vote against that legislation. Okay. Now, if, but on the other hand, if they said, "All right, look, I'm going to raise taxes on the rich to 50 percent," okay, and we're going to get a fair distribution, I'm going to stop giving away subsidies to GE, the defense contractors, the oil subsidies. If you agree to keep this、uh, program to the poverty line, I would make that deal. Lays off 20 cardinals. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. In a cost-cutting measure brought on by sluggish first-quarter tithes, recently elected Pope Benedict XVI announced today that he will issue pink slips to 20 cardinals. The pontiff told reporters that any downsizing is regrettable, but the Catholic Church needs to streamline its operations in order to compete in the spiritual marketplace. Don Giuliani, Don Scandi, Lomondi. 
These were good, capable cardinals. We prayed for a way to save their jobs, but unfortunately, the bottom line is the bottom line. This is a church we're running, not a charity ward. The laid-off cardinals will be given a generous severance package that includes 20,000 boys. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News, online at The Onion. Corporate media have been obsessed with one aspect of the budget cuts set to hit the federal government next year, the ones that affect the military budget. But equal cuts are scheduled to come out of an array of social programs, which tend to get next to no media attention. So kudos to the New York Times' Jennifer Steinhauer, who wrote a June 22nd piece that pointed out that, quote, other government programs are facing equally large cuts, though they have received a scintilla of the attention and outrage that the planned Pentagon cuts have attracted, close quote. She cited one analyst who noted that a quarter of these cuts will affect Americans at or below the poverty line. But old media habits die hard, if they die at all. The very same day in the Washington Post, there was a piece headlined, Study says Pentagon budget cuts would destroy one million jobs. The study came from the industry group, the National Association of Manufacturers. And the Post story about this study offered not a word of skepticism. The piece was even careful to note that the massive job losses would affect small and large companies alike. Now, a critic might have pointed out, as Robert Pollan and Heidi Garrett Peltier did in The Nation recently, that military spending is a pretty inefficient job creator, especially when compared to sectors like clean energy or education. But the Washington Post, which is the hometown paper for an array of military contractors, lobbyists, and their politician friends, doesn't find that kind of angle newsworthy, for some reason. someone at American Airlines realized that if they took a single olive out of each salad they served, they could save two million dollars a year. And so it began. A long, hard spiral to the bottom in which there is a price put on things like olives and peanuts, yet no monetary value given to just being a good business or caring about people or giving a flying about the who are flying. Some airlines have said they'll soon start charging for families to sit together. 
This means we have privatized common decency. Not to mention if the families aren't sitting together, that means I may end up babysitting some sniffling snot brain idiot in an elbow t-shirt just because Continental wants to make an extra hundred grand a year. And then they'll start charging for you to avoid sitting next to the three-year-old Johnny Knoxville sticking carrot sticks down his pants. And then they'll charge you to avoid sitting next to the, the, the angry comedian who says a lot and seems furious that there's no olive in his salad because he claims it's part of some deeper olive-based conspiracy. Eventually we'll get to a point where we choose who we want to pay to avoid the most. Let's see, uh, the talkative dentist with the bad breast soaked Republican talking points, or the uh, sleeping amateur sumo wrestler who clings on to you for safety from his night terrors. Huh. It used to be that elderly people were allowed on the plane first because they needed extra time, right? But now airlines charge for getting on early, so they've stopped letting the old people on first. They've taken common decency and common sense and placed it on a monetary scale. And it's not just airlines. It's everything from rental cars to mobile phones, ATM fees to insurance policies. Every manner to screw you will be utilized, even if it means charging you just to talk to someone about the thing that's wrong with the thing you bought. They put 12 half-witted fart lickers between you and a refund, just out of the hope that you'll hang yourself while you're talking to fart licker number 10, and therefore they'll get to keep their $49. This is creating two worlds. One that's civilized and friendly for rich people who can afford it, and another one for everyone else that involves elbowing octogenarians out of the way while boarding a flight because Eunice failed to pay the $10 don't treat me like surcharge. But why should we abide by these corporate rules? Why stand by and allow the commoditization of kindness? Why don't we, as passengers, say, here's an idea, f***ing We're not getting on this plane until you allow the woman who looks like Lucille Ball's ghost wrapped around a telephone booth-sized pocketbook to get on first. We're making this decision. And furthermore, she's allowed to walk on your stupid red carpet that's two feet long and was probably in the entryway of a happy ending massage parlor until you grabbed it and decided it means elite. Today, we're giving away common decency for free. Hey, this is Lee Camp. I hope you've enjoyed having my Moment of Clarity rants pumped into your skulls. If you have, you would almost definitely love my free Moment of Clarity backstage podcast where I discuss the topics of the day. You know, the little things like the corporate raping and pillaging of our world. I also have on fun, awesome guests like this lady. My name is Janine Garofalo. This guy. Hi, I'm John Oliver. Even sometimes this guy. This is Greg Palace, and I've got my zipper caught in Moments of Clarity. Free at Lee Camp. .net, iTunes, Stitcher, or the Android app. Plus, there's a Moment of Clarity book for those of you who thought, I love Moment of Clarity, but I hate how I can't lick it. Well, now you can. The Moment of Clarity book and ebook, get it at LeeCamp.net or on most e-reader platforms. And remember, keep fighting and stay angry. Be glad that you don't live in Scr Scranton, Pennsylvania, and be glad that uh, you don't work for the city doing stuff like putting out fires, arresting people, fixing roads, 
really doing anything for the city of Scranton because despite the fact that a county court has told the mayor of Scranton you cannot unilaterally ignore the contract you have with city employees and change what you pay them. The mayor, Chris Darty, is going forward with a plan to slash the pay of 398 workers down to the federal minimum wage of $7.25 an hour. This is despite the, the fact that a judge has said, hey, you know, um, you know all those contracts we hear were so important for maintaining the bonus structure for the bankers? Well, you can't just unilaterally decide to pay your workers less. And seven and a quarter, not exactly uh, the kind of money you want to make if you're doing, well, really anything. We've talked in the past if the minimum wage had been tracking uh, inflation since 1968. It would be over $10 an hour. Even then, if you're a fireman, you got to think twice about going into that burning building um, if you can't feed your family. This is a function of what happens when the federal government stops providing extra funds to states and municipalities. When we talk about that stimulus that the right-wingers like to say was a trillion dollars, remind you, it, it was $770 billion some odd, half of which, well, one-third to 40% was tax cuts. That $400 billion that remains has more or less run out. And so this is why we have seen over 650 some odd thousand Government workers on the state, federal, and municipal levels get fired. And if we had been following the same trajectory that was followed by President Bush, President Clinton, President Bush after that, President Reagan, I should say before, the number of government workers would not have declined by 600,000, would have actually risen anywhere from two to three to a million more government workers. Because when you have a recession, when you have a great recession like we've had, private sector cannot maintain growth. You need to grow the economy by giving more money to the states, the cities, and to cut government workers at this point. So uh, the mayor, Chris Doherty, has figured out, well, we can just pay them crappy wages. Don't know how that'll work out, but get used to it, folks. Uh, this is coming down the pike, as we would have said in Massachusetts. I don't know if you say that in Pennsylvania. Minimum wage.
get you. They're in your town. They're down the street. They might even show up at your door. First, they'll take your job. Then, they'll take your soul. Firemen, policemen, and teachers. It's time to send them back home and put America back to work. They're not real American workers. They're not even human. They're shape-shifting deficit bots from the planet Bureaucron. First, they'll kill the economy. Then, they'll kill you. With their twisted brand of public service and taxpayer-funded education and safety. They masquerade as your friends and neighbors, sometimes posing as helpful park rangers, mailmen, or worse yet, social security administrators. But they would just as soon kill the private sector as make a birdhouse out of your skull. So beware, government workers are lurking everywhere. And though they may even give you a smile, they're probably smiling because they just killed capitalism. I'm Mitt Romney and I approve this message of private sector goodness. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. So you know people get traffic tickets, I got one recently as I've been telling you guys, and it costs a ton of money, including traffic court, I just paid it, normal speeding ticket, not outrageous, not going over 90 miles, nothing, uh, $424, that's devastating. Now luckily, I had the money to pay it. I can see how a lot of people wouldn't have $424 lying around extra, right? So they, I know what the conservatives always say, oh, well, then don't speed, ha ha. Really? None of you have gone over the speed limit at all in your entire lives? I don't believe that for a second. I believe every single person watching this has gone over the speed limit, and oftentimes significantly so. So what happens when you do? Well, there's a private corporation ready to screw you. So let's talk about why. Uh, let's take the example of Gina Ray that uh, the New York Times wrote about recently. She lives in Alabama, and she got a speeding ticket, normal so far, and it's $179. You know, it's the cost of living in L.A. is higher, so I can see how genius is lower at $179, but that's still a lot of money. And so she didn't have it. She was 20 years, 28 years old. But it's not even that. She says that the ticket uh, had written out the court date wrong, and that's why she initially didn't pay. Okay? So what happens next? Well, they start piling on the charges. And at some point, they turn it over to a private corporation, who then says, well, since I got to collect my fees and then give the original fees to the government, well, I got to pile on even more fees for you. So we go from $179 for Gina Ray to, in the end, $3,170, 
because Judicial Correction Services Incorporated and companies like them decide, hey, you know what? You got to pay us on top of what you normally owe. And then since she does, can't pay that, she couldn't pay the original amount, let alone $3,170, she goes to jail. She goes to jail for 40 days. Now, what the hell is a private corporation doing sending citizens to jail? I thought we didn't have debtors' prisons anymore. No, 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 but if it's a government fine, then you can go to prison, even if it's a misdemeanor. But what the great trick is, the government sells their fines off to a for-profit probation company. They then turn around and say, hey, government, this woman owes us money. Put her ass in jail. If she owes a private corporation money, she's going to jail. And the government says, oh, well, you initially owed us $179, so there you go, off you go. Now, now you're over 3000 bucks. Well, how the hell are you going to pay that? Well, a lot of people can't. And the New York Times... Terrific article. It has case after case. Here, let me give you a couple others. Uh, you saw there Gina Ray speeding 3,040 days. How about uh, Richard Garrett? Normal traffic ticket? His fines have now gone up to $10,000. Oh, come on, man. Who's got $10,000? And apparently Richard doesn't. He's a former veteran, by the way. I'm sorry, he's a veteran formerly uh, in the Iraq War. Who cares? You served your country and you didn't pay uh, some sort of private probation company enough money 24 months in prison you had a traffic ticket or you had it coming you shouldn't have sped ha ha 24 months in prison he's never gonna pay that bill and especially because if you keep putting him in jail how the hell is he gonna pay it and then he's got a record and then who's gonna hire him so then you can keep putting him back in jail and taking more money from him and more money from him and more money from him and keep putting him back in prison this is just three of hundreds, thousands of examples across the country. Let me show you the third one. Hills McGee, another better. Public drunkenness. Who hasn't done that, right? Okay, look, I had trouble with public drunkenness. I remember uh, cops gave me hell for it. Uh, $270 was the original ticket. Now the fine is $700. Uh, he can't pay it yet because uh, he's another veteran tr struggling to get a job. Uh, yeah, that's okay. Imprisoned. They're all in jail. What the hell is going on in this country? All right, well, so why are the courts doing this? Now, we know why the private corporations are doing it. They're making money off of it, right? So why is the government doing it? Well, first of all, these guys say, don't worry. We can collect better for you guys. Okay, we'll be more efficient in how we collect these fines. By crushing these people and destroying their lives, we'll be more efficient in collecting your original $179 fine. Oh, great. So what do they use it for? Well, government has its own thing. Say, hey, you know what? They use some of it for police training, some of it from crime laboratories. Some of this could be helpful. Victim assistance program sounds lovely, right? Uh, the court's computer system, okay, that's uh, pretty good. So they say, look, since we have these needs and we need money for that, well, okay, it justifies everything. But I love the last one. They also, the court fees go to retirement funds for court officials. Oh, is that right? Now, that might give you an interesting incentive to make sure that you hand it off to a private corporation who's a little bit more efficient in getting that funding, even if they're absolutely ruthless and gut your fellow citizens to do it. Who cares? In fact, the chief marketing officer for Judicial Correction Services says, we hear a lot of, I can't pay the fee. It's not our job to figure that out. Well, that's lovely, Kevin. We appreciate that sentiment. But it gives you a sense of where their head's at. Now, later on, he also says, look, we don't want them going to prison. If they do, they can't pay us. We'd rather that they didn't go to prison. Well, Kevin, there'd be an easy way of 
making sure they didn't go to prison, don't put them in prison, okay? And that's BS anyway, because one, they use that as a threat to get a lot more money out on an individual basis, and on a macro basis, they say to everybody, hey, you see what we did to McGee? You see what we did to Gina Ray? You better pay up! But wait a minute, the original thing was 200 bucks, now you're asking for 3,000, oh, shut up and pay! Otherwise you go to prison, and we're gonna ruin your life! We got to stop handing over critical governmental tasks to private corporations. We can't having them have them imprison our fellow citizens because they didn't pay their outrageous, ridiculous fees. And you know, not only are they doing it all across the country, of course they're doing it even more so in red states. This is in Alabama, a lot of these examples, Georgia, dozens of companies sending thousands of people to jail just to make an extra buck. Yeah, you keep voting for those politicians who then, by the way, also get greased by companies like this, and also by the for-profit prisons who also make money off of imprisoning you. And then, gee, I wonder why we have the highest incarceration rate in the world. I wonder why we have 5% of the world's population and 25% of its prisoners. Because people make money off of putting you in prison. We gotta take our government back so that they can't do that to us. The government in a democracy is supposed to be us. And we don't agree to that. Do you guys want Gina Ray in prison? No right person thinking, thinks, oh, Gina Ray didn't pay the original $179. Put her in prison for 40 days. Let alone that veteran in prison for 24 months. But we're not run by the citizens. We're not run by a democracy. Our government has been wholly bought by these private corporations. That's who we're run by. We've got to have a revolt against that. I'm not talking about a violent revolt. I'm talking about a legal, political, absolute revolution. I'm tired of the corporations running our lives. I'm tired of them sending my fellow citizens. It didn't happen to me. But damn it, I know people like Gina Ray. Don't you know them? You know, let them keep going to prison because somebody else wanted to make an extra buck and they bought our cheap politicians to do it because we let them do it. Because they can just give donations out and they're oh, no, no, that's not bribery. That's not bribery. He doesn't have to do what I tell him. Of course, he won't get reelected if he doesn't keep getting campaign contributions from for-profit corporations. But hey, that's the system we have. Number one in the world. No, we used to be number one in the world. This system is destroying this country. Because since the mid-1970s, since the Supreme Court said corporations are human beings, they have speech rights, they can spend unlimited money buying our government, we have gone to a system that does not work for the citizens. It works for the corporations, the multinational corporations that are sucking us dry. It's time to fight those machines and put an end to this and regain our democracy. Hi, Jay. This is Jeremy from Linwood, Washington. I just wanted to weigh in on the issue of whether to vote for a third-party candidate or not. And um, the way I see it is if you live in a non-swing state, um, a state that consistently votes either red or blue, then you might as well vote for a third-party candidate because 
your vote's not really going to affect the outcome of the election anyway. I mean, for instance, I live in Washington State, which is probably the most liberal state in the country, and it's obviously going to go for Barack Obama, so I'm going to decide to vote for Rocky Anderson. And if you live in a state like Mississippi, and you're a liberal, I mean, it's obviously going to go for Mitt Romney, so you might as well vote for a third-party candidate like you know, a Green Party candidate or a Libertarian candidate because you don't really have to worry about the outcome of the election. Anyway, um, love your show. Keep up the great work. And I'll keep listening. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Stephen from Washington State. On your, uh, your last show, uh, there was a clip from the professional left talking about centrism and the false balance that people strike up. And I, it left a bad taste in my mouth. Um, I was rather offended, actually, because I consider myself not a centrist, but I don't really, I don't subscribe to the, the tribal label of a liberal, liberal or a progressive. And the way they were kind of putting people who say, well, both sides do it, and saying that's what all independents and centrists do, and that's why they're the enemy, I mean, I agree with their sentiment that you can't say that both sides are equally wrong. That's definitely not true. But, I mean, I I don't agree with everything that liberals and progressives say. And I don't like I don't like labels because I don't like agreeing to a whole package without knowing what the whole package is. So I don't know if they do that all the time, but uh, I didn't think that was a good introduction to what they say. Um, but otherwise, I love the show, and I listen to it all the time now. So, uh, thanks. Hello, my name is Jane. Um, I live in the South, but I was raised in the West. And I just have a comment about the statement about centrist. Being that I've lived on, you know, in a liberal place and now live in the, you know, Bible Belt, I find that centrist is actually the solution instead of the problem. So um, that clip, I don't remember which one it was, but the clip about how they were the main problem and we got to get rid of them and they're helping the right, I find is very um, problematic because if we had more centrists, then we'd actually find a good common goal. You know, to say that the, the left is, is always right and the right is always wrong causes a big problem. We don't find the common goal because no one is completely one way or the other. You have differences. And making people choose is what causes the, the, the dogmatic principles that we, we currently have. We have no winners. We have people fighting against each other because they want to fall into this party. They want to fall into this party or that party. And that causes so much more problems than to just come to the table and say, okay, well, you want this and I want this, but this kind of actually relates to this as well. So... That's just my two cents. Love your show. Would be a member, but I'm probably about to get unemployed. Bye. Hey, Jay. Uh, this is Rod from Bakersfield, California, and I'm giving you a call today regarding the response that you gave to the caller that had said um, we uh, shouldn't vote for Obama to uh, show, uh, to give a voice to the cause of the liberals. 
And um, I couldn't agree with you more with how you explained it. Actually, you explained it just like I was going to originally call. So thank God I listened to your explanation at the end of the podcast before I called in. But why I'm calling today is something that I hear a lot from liberals, and I, which I am one of, to think about centrists. Even she had said something about how both parties do it, and that's the corruption in the system. Another caller called in, and he said the same thing. And that concept is centrism, and that is just a myth. People that repeat that over and over again are basically using a conservative talking point to kind of fade away uh, their cause in the destruction of our political system. 80% of the money donated to uh, Washington goes to conservatives, to Republicans. 20% goes the other way, and it's probably blue dog Democrats who are basically Republicans anyway. And I listen to uh, the professional left all the time. And they are always screaming at the top of their lungs how uh, there isn't a centrist and how people are kind of letting the Republicans get away with the destruction of our system based on this myth that, well, they do it too, which basically is just not the point. So uh, that's what I got to say. Uh, I think you have a great show and love what you do and keep it up. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So today I want to talk about something that I've actually been meaning to talk about for months because several months ago I finished rereading Animal Farm by George Orwell, which I actually enjoy more than 1984, even though 1984 is, I think, much more famous. And so the premise in Animal Farm is that a group of animals living on a farm, as you might have guessed, uh, actually take over the farm from the human masters. And so they sort of convert it into what very much feels like a communist commune, where those who were the underclass and sort of the slaves of the farm, the animals, uh, now become the masters and they get to run the farm as they see fit. They are the workers taking control of the means of production, essentially. And so that's a very nice idea until sort of the natural state of things begins to assert itself. The pigs claim themselves as, you know, obviously the smartest, and so they should uh, clearly, rather than doing manual labor, they should be in charge of running the farm themselves and, and sort of deciding what everyone should do. And then because it's so important for them to be taken care of because they're in charge, they then need, you know, extra food rations and they should be able to sleep in the humans' beds inside the house instead of out in the barn and so on. And, and so, you know, through this series, uh, you know, of, of incidents, it becomes very clear that there is an income disparity widening between the upper class pigs and dogs and the lower class rest of the animals who are doing all the actual work. So I wanted to read uh, just a quick passage from from the end, which is just so indicative and, and enlightening in terms of our current situation. And so the only thing you need to know about this is that the windmill in the story is, uh, you know, they were they had decided to build a windmill because it brought with it promises of greater efficiency and it would be able to generate electricity and do work for the animals so that the animals wouldn't have to do as much manual labor. And, you know, everyone would be better off for it. And then also just know that Snowball and uh, Napoleon are two, you know, main character pigs. Uh, Snowball, who very much wanted for things to sort of work out for everyone and, and made promises about the windmill. And Napoleon, who's sort of the secretly nefarious leader who uh, abuses his power. So... 
towards the end of the, end of the book, it says this. The windmill, however, had not after all been used for generating electrical power. It was used for milling corn and brought in a handsome money profit. The animals were hard at work building yet another windmill. When that one was finished, so it was said, the dynamos would be installed. But the luxuries of which Snowball had once taught the animals to dream, the stalls with electric light and hot and cold water and a three-day week, were no longer talked about. Napoleon had denounced such ideas as contrary to the spirit of animalism. The truest happiness, he said, lay in working hard and living frugally. Somehow, it seemed as though the farm had grown richer without making the animals themselves any richer. Except, of course, for the pigs and the dogs. And I don't know about you, but that actually gives me chills to, to read it and think about our current state. And for those of you who remember you know, the woman uh, talking to President Bush about how she, uh, you know, was struggling and working three jobs and he congratulated her and, and was so proud of her and, and talked about how uniquely American it was to have to work that hard to barely scrape by. And so, you know, so I, I read this and I thought, boy, I, I need to talk about this on the show, but I didn't know what to say about it, you know, because it's so profoundly depressing to know that, you know, this was, it, it was a reflection of the time when it was written and, and a prediction of the future. And it makes it seem inevitable that this is sort of the natural state of things that life will always keep going back to. Society will always keep going back to it. And so I sort of just pose the question in my head, like, okay, so what do I say about this? What do I ask the listeners about this? Do I ask for an answer? There seems not to be one. But I'm glad that I didn't talk about it then because I have an answer now. And it's actually the inevitability of the endlessness of this struggle that I've come to take comfort from rather than become depressed by. And it actually comes from hearing an interview with Chris Hayes. Uh, he's, he's been doing lots of interviews. He's promoting his new book, Twilight of the Elites. And uh, I, I know I heard him on you know, several different shows, and he talked about the myth of Sisyphus in one of them. And I, I could not for the life of me find where it was, but I was able to find another interview he did in print. And so I'm going to read a little bit of, about what he says of the myth of Sisyphus. And if you're not familiar, that's the myth where... Sisyphus is, is, you know, made to roll a boulder up a hill only to have it roll back down to then go back to the bottom and roll it to the top for eternity. And so this is what Chris Hayes has to say. There is no final fix, no static condition. The nature of having egalitarian commitments is recognizing that the work is never done. The inevitability of that, it's a little like the Camus essay, The Myth of Sisyphus. The inevitability of that doesn't mean it's invalid. It means the struggle continues. You keep fighting for equality because equality isn't the natural state of human beings. I think that's in some ways the really profound insight. Inequality is baked into the cake. Inequality and hierarchy are natural, but that doesn't mean they're right. That doesn't mean there isn't a productive tension between those forces and the forces of equality. And so now, you know, for the first time in my life, thinking about the myth of Sisyphus brings me comfort. I, you know, I think, I think about where we are now and how, you know, it feels so much like the boulder has rolled to the bottom of the hill, it's so easy to become discouraged. But if you take the really, really broad view and recognize that is natural, that is the state of things, it is natural to have to repeat these steps endlessly. And 
when you recognize that that is the system you're working within, I don't know about you, but I can take comfort knowing that fighting the good fight means never, ever actually succeeding and being okay with that and just recognizing that it's it's the fight that counts and it's the incremental improvements that count, knowing that there is no end in sight. There is no end, period. There is no point at which we will have reached an equal and fair society. It's never going to happen. It will be a constant struggle. And knowing that helps me weather the bad times, knowing that it's all part of the natural process of things. So hopefully thinking about it in that way helps you as much as it's helped me. And that is going to do it for today. Thanks to everyone who supports the show by becoming a member or making a one-time donation to the show. That is absolutely how uh, the show survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by spreading the word of individual clips, including the commentary you just heard, through your social networks. That can all be done through the website. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors the show from bestoftheleft.com. Fine points now black and white. So took apart a picture that wasn't right. 